Hey, if you have a Bible, would you go to Luke chapter 1? That's where we're going to spend a little bit of time today. Luke chapter 1. If you've been with us over the past four weeks, we've been lighting one more of the candles on the Advent wreath each week. To be honest, I've never used the Advent wreath in worship services. This is our first year as a church uh, to do this, but it's become one of my favorite parts of our worship service each week. I love it. I love watching the families do it. I loved when Sarah Campbell led us kind of on the fly. She bailed us out because somebody had to cancel. Um, but I love watching the kids. My favorite is Otomo Tom Emmanuel. We're going to remember that for years to come from the Stump household. Um, and I love the reflections as we've looked at these candles that represent hope and faith and joy, and then today the coming of Christ. And I, I've been thinking about this this wreath this week and how the light with each week that we get closer to Christmas increases. And I, and I think that kind of frames what Advent is really about, right? As we move in a season where we anticipate the birth of Christ and and we lean in with eagerness, we long for Christmas morning just like our kiddos and, and, and spiritually speaking. We long for the time when darkness will be pushed back by what the writer John calls the light of the world. Think about that, right? The, the disciple, the friend of Jesus, John, says that without Jesus' coming, without his advent, the world would remain in darkness. We would have no hope. And I love that phrase. I love it as John writes it because John frames his own Christmas story. If you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and we're going to look at part of the one in Luke today, but if you were to read the Gospel of John, his Christmas story is very different. John starts his book with a different phrase, a different way of telling the story because he says in John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. See, John starts his Christmas story of Jesus by telling and retelling a story of the Jewish people that they would have known in Jesus' day. He echoes, John echoes the creation story that the Jews would have known. Remember Genesis 1-1, in the beginning. And John says, in the beginning, there's a new beginning taking place. And just as God spoke into the darkness of the formless and the empty earth in Genesis where he created with the words, let there be light, John tells us that Jesus, the word of God, was with God in the beginning. And then he tells us this new creation story in verse 4. He says, in him was life, and watch this, the life, that life was the light of all mankind. And then we see our Advent wreath so powerfully in the life of Jesus. John says, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I think we need that Christmas story this year. Amen? I think we need that story. If Advent is about anything, it's about the light of creation entering into the darkness and pushing back the darkness with salvation. This week, our family felt a little bit of that darkness. After 12 years, we lost our puppy. It was terrible, right? Many of you met Lily. She probably never saw you because she was not very good at seeing, right? But she heard you and she barked at you. Um, she smelled you and she would have remembered you. But this has been a really tough week for us. When Carrie called to let me know we needed to take Lily to the vet, I was right in the middle of a meeting at the middle school with several of our administrators and our counselors. And I I just kind of dropped the news on them and walked out. And it was a really hard night and it's been a really tough week. But the morning after all this happened, I went back to work and I was trying to process things. And I ran into one of our school counselors from the school and she kind of pulled me aside and she said, and this is what she said, she said, hey, I just wanted to know if you're okay. And we talked for a minute, and I filled her in on what had taken place. And then she created this moment that was full of this incredible compassion in the middle of a global pandemic, right? In a year when we've lost so much, in a year where we've only seen half of each other's faces, 
and therefore half of the body language that we need to connect. In the middle of all this, that counselor looked at me. She said, can I give you a hug? I'm telling you, I was undone, right? Like I held it together in a manly way, right? Like I had to do that. But I left that moment and I went back to my classroom and I was undone. For the rest of that day, I thought about the power of that moment that the counselor created, how it affected me. Many of you who've walked through uh, our journey, our discipleship journey here in a huddle, you, you know I share this in every group. I say that I process things with my head, like emotions. I can get there. I'm pretty sensitive. I think Carrie would say that. But I lead with my head. That's, that's where things go. So I process internally. I listen. I analyze. And my emotions filter through my thinking. And I know that sounds weird, but it's healthy for me. And, and so at that moment, when our counselor offered that hug, I sat in my office and couldn't figure out why it was hitting me so hard. It felt like this, this torrent of emotion in some way that I hadn't felt in a very long time. And to be really honest, it wasn't just about the loss of a dog, though that was part of it. There was more to what I felt and processed. I couldn't help thinking that day about how outside of my own family, how little physical contact I've had with people in 2020. Have you thought about this? Like in a, in a normal year, I probably shake hands 20 to 40 times on a Sunday. That's what I was thinking about this week. I go to our denominational gatherings, and I see my ministry buddies, and, and there's always an embrace in a manly way. Like, we're always, I, I, you know, that's what we do. I, I see kids in school and at church, and I make sure to high-five them, put an arm around them, whatever. Many of you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Because part of the darkness that we felt this year, and I thought about this this week as I shed tears after that hug, but part of the darkness we felt this year is the loss of contact. We have lost so much touch that we had before. We have, we have elderly grandparents who haven't been able to hold newborn grandchildren. Right? We have families who have not only not seen each other, but haven't touched each other in nearly a year. We've seen the images of the nursing homes where families can only peer through the windows at aging relatives. It's tragic. And even, even the surface levels of affection, a handshake, a brush of the arm, seeing a smile, not approaching someone wondering if it's okay to come close. Are you just sick of this, right? Are you going to be freaked out if I come three feet away from Like, that's what we feel, right? Being able to preach and see your faces actually get the jokes. I don't know if any joke has landed in the past eight months. I have no idea. But it's hard. These things have been stripped away. We've seen the darkness advance this year. And part of the darkness advancing is the distance that we felt from each other. What I realized after that counselor's incredible offer of a compassionate hug was that I was both comforted and disturbed by this contact. It was, it was one of the kindest gestures I've received in a long time, and it messed me up. It messed me up because at least in 2020, it felt really foreign. We've been in this series that we, we've called Finding Joy for the past several weeks, and we've been walking through the book of Philippians, kind of chapter by chapter, and we're going to go to Philippians near the end of today for some application, but before we get there, I want to look at one part of the traditional Christmas story where we find Mary, who we just were singing about, being told by the angel that she would give birth to the Messiah. I want to look at what it meant before Jesus came near, when God came near to Mary to unveil the story that he would write in her life. Look at Luke 1. We're going to look at verse 26 is where we're going to start. We're just going to read a couple verses here. Here's what it says. In the sixth month, month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. 
And we know this story, right? We've read this story. We preach this story. I hope you've read this story with your kids. It's such a familiar part of the Christmas time. For, for a long time, it's been known in, in traditional settings, religious settings, as the Annunciation. But, but put this story, just for today, in the context of light and darkness. Think about this story in the midst of this year, in a, t- in a time where we've lost so much contact, where we've grown distanced from each other. See, the context of this story, I always want you to get the context of the scriptures. I don't ever want to just preach a verse. I want to tell you the story of scriptures. But the context is that this is just as dark of a time in the history of Israel. The, Israel has gone 400 years at this point without hearing from God. 400 years without a word from a prophet. 400 years without someone stepping up and going, this is what God wants to speak to you. See, God, think about this, God has been distant for four centuries. And to this Jewish audience, God is doing something. Elizabeth is pregnant. If you read the rest of Luke 1, the story earlier tells us this. And now God sends an angel, but not just any angel, the angel, Gabriel. The same angel who shows up back in Daniel in the Old Testament to tell the prophet of God's judgment and his ultimate victory. This is the angel who comes onto this scene. But here, and this is the beauty that I want you to get, in this scene, we don't have Daniel, the prophet. We don't have the mighty city of Babylon. We have what the writer in Luke calls, and I love this, a town. Did you notice that? The angel came to a town. It was Nazareth in Galilee, but nobody really knew that place. We don't have the angel came to Times Square, right? Like that's not what we see happening. Not Washington, D.C., not a metropolis. We have a town, a small town called Nazareth, a no-name town, a place where it was even said, this is the quote in the scriptures, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Lewis County? I'm just kidding. That's kind of what this was, though. This was just a place. And we have not even the prophet Daniel, but we have just a virgin, just this girl. We have a woman in a male-driven culture at the forefront of the annunciation of the Savior of the universe. By the way, that's a sermon in a sentence right there. We have a teenage fiancé, and the mighty angel came, comes close. God makes contact. And he says to this virgin in this town, You are favored. The Lord is with you. You're favored. The Lord is with you. I read that statement, that verse this week after the hug heard round my head, and I thought, this is the compassionate moment. This is God entering in, coming close, pushing back the darkness with words of favor. See, some of you, as we wind down this year, this is all I want you to hear, and I want it to settle over you like a storm that isn't going to leave for a few days. I just want you to know this. God longs to enter into your darkness. He longs to step into the darkest places of your life. I can't sum up the gospel, the hope of salvation in Jesus Christ, any simpler than that statement. God wants to come close to you. Wherever you are, wherever you've been, whatever the pain, whatever the fear, God knows the name of your town. He knows the name of your shadows. He knows your name. And I love this. The audience wouldn't have known. The people reading this, hearing this, wouldn't have known Nazareth from Naperville. They wouldn't have known Mary from Margaret. Margaret. But God did. And he came close. To write the story of Advent on Mary's heart, he came close to her. He came to her town and he came to her spirit. And he said, you are favored. The Lord is with you. Friends, in a year where so many of us have been hurt, frustrated, fearful, 
anxious, angrier than we have been in a long time. I, wanted to, I just want to start today with these words from the angel. You are still favored. God is still with you. Even if you feel like he's not, he's still with you. He's not departed. He's not far. As the psalmist says in, in the Psalms 34 verse 18, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. Maybe you just need to write that down or whisper it to somebody today. God is close to you. If you're crushed in spirit, he's closed. close. Yeah, I've preached a whole lot this year. My words are not working very well today. God's compassions are new. They never grow old. He gives new mercies each morning. Friends, you are loved by the ultimate lover. You are favored. He is close. And the story goes on, and it gives us the transparency of Mary's honest response. I love right after the angel looks at her and says, you're favored. God is with you. Here's what it tells us in verse 29. Mary was messed up. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. Would you react like that? Now, if I say it to you, you're favored. God loves you. You're like, oh, this feels good. I love it. If the angel Gabriel who defeats armies stands before you and is like, listen, God favors you, it might trouble you a little bit. It might mess you up. I know I'm intimidating, but Gabriel's a little bit more so. I love this. The angel says, you're favored. The Lord's with you. And we're told Mary's troubled and can't figure out what kind of greeting this is. Do you know what happened to me on Wednesday when the compassionate counselor offered a hug? I'm going to be really honest. My first thought, my first thought, and the next six thoughts, these, these are what they were, all in a, a split second. I'm standing in the middle of the hallway outside the office, and someone may see me, and I'm a guy, and I'm a pastor, and I don't need this, and I'll be fine. And why did she offer this? That's what went through my head in that split second. And all that happened, all that was going in my head as I said, sure, you can hug me. That's what was going on. That's exactly what was taking. It was incredibly comforting, and it was incredibly disturbing. I'm going to be really honest about this. I am way better. I'm so much better at ministering to people than allowing myself to be ministered to. Any common hearts in the room? I'm so much better at, at counseling than seeking counsel. And I bet many of you are too. And here's why. I know this to be the case. Because love coming close can mess us up. Love in, in, in imposing its will in our lives. Breaking down the barriers of whatever's been hardened. Whatever's, when someone's been hurt, abused, wounded, broken, damaged. When someone with those arrows in them is loved and favored unconditionally, their existence is troubled. Our existence is troubled. I've seen it in myself. I see it in so many others. I've seen it in students who come from hellish home lives. The offer of love coming close can mess us up. It disturbs us because it's not the way we are used to living. It's not what we're used to. We've not known favor, grace, unconditional love. And when we live with that distance in our lives, we live hardened. And love is like that, that stuff we put on our windshield to get the ice off. It just messes us up. And we can't see, but it's getting at the core of who we are. And how much more then should we realize this fact? If love coming close messes us up, then you got to get this. God coming close is certainly going to mess you up. God coming close into your life, speaking in with his favor and his joy and his, his presence is going to mess you up. See, think about this. Some of you get it. You, you get how much God close to you can mess you up. But some of us, this is what we've done. Social distancing was not that tough for us because we've been social distancing God for a long time. We've been social distancing people for a long time. Not physically, maybe. You're standing next to people, but they don't know the real you. 
God doesn't, you're not showing God the real you. See, we, we just have done this to God. We keep our belief in God, our relationship with God, our worship of God at an intellectual level because it's easier that way, isn't it? We do, we, we, so we do the church thing. We come here on Sundays. We sing the songs. We clap for a chorus. Look how holy I am. I made it through the whole chorus and I didn't stop clapping. Like the, nobody's getting this. See, this is, I don't know if this joke is working or if you just are like, this guy's an idiot. Go on. We do the church thing, but giving ourselves, listen, giving ourselves over to God entirely, entirely, physically, spiritually, emotionally, it just feels too risky. Because if we gave up that hardness, we might fall apart. And then who would we be? Right? You know what I love? Some of you, maybe you've experienced this. You know what I love about my charismatic and Pentecostal brothers and sisters in Christ? They trust their emotions to a God who loves all of them. I have been in some incredibly, if we worshiped like this, you all would leave. You'd be freaked out. I mean, you guys, you guys like our worship style because it's like, it's pretty safe. And they make me clap every once in a while. Every once in a while, Justin does something weird like make me kneel. But we're okay. We can get through that, Right? Or I can just close my eyes and act like I didn't hear him or see it, right? Like, we're just going to... But when I've been in the noisiest, most uncomfortable worship services, the ones I've been a part of, those are also the services where I've seen people become set more free than anywhere else I've ever seen. Because they trust their emotions to God. They trust God to meet them in that moment. This is why last week I invited you in the middle of the sermon to stop listening to me and worship in song, to actually assume a posture that reflects your heart, to kneel before God, to lift your hands. And some of you did, but some of you are so uncomfortable with that because of the hardness that we've put up. And I want to say, that's not, I don't mean that as guilt. I don't mean that as sin. I mean that as you're uncomfortable with love coming close. You're uncomfortable if you open your hands what someone else might think. You know what they might think? God's doing something in that guy's life. Way to go. I have a buddy, and we, we did youth ministry for years together, and he told me the first time he ever felt like he needed to lift his hands in worship, he said he just, he just, he was so nervous, so nervous, so nervous. He finally got the courage, and he put his hand up, and his dad, without, without even blinking, was like, wham, and high-fived him. And he was like, Dad, what are you doing? Because he was so, it took so much risk to get out there. Friends, we know that feeling, don't we? And I don't mean just in worship. I just mean, what does it mean to let God come close to you? What does it mean to open ourselves to God? I, I, see, I long for our church to be a church where we raise hands frequently because the love of God is stronger than our insecurity of the people around us. Wouldn't that be an amazing place? I want to see a church where people are going, man, the Holy Spirit is convicting me so much. i got to leave worship and go make some things right in my family, in my friendships, before I ever come to the throne room of God. I've got to open myself up to that. I want to see us kneel as a common practice, to shed tears, to surrender the hardened part of your life. Even if it's your marriage, to surrender that, your broken relationships, your fears, your angles, angers. I want to see you surrender those things to the love that might just disturb them because friends this is what God coming close always does when we're disturbed by God's love it always moves us it always disturbs us toward healing see sometimes I wonder if the comfortable versions of our Christianity our socially distant God who neatly fits in our Sunday morning boxes is actually preventing us from the intimate encounter with him that he longs for I wonder if we're missing what that could be if we began to worship you know what David calls us in the Old Testament 
He goes dancing his way into the city. You guys remember this story in the Old Testament? If you haven't read it, you should go read it. David, they, they recapture the ark of the presence of God, and they're bringing the ark into the city, and it says David strips down to his undies. That's the Hebrew word. No, it's not, but that's what it is. He strips down to his undergarment, and he comes dancing his way back into the city, and his wife looks, and she's like, what the heck are you doing? Guys, you ever made a fool of yourself to the point where your wife is like, come on, idiot. That's what's going on. And David is dancing, and she criticizes him. And he says, listen, I'll become even more undignified than this. What if that became the heart cry of us as we just said, God, love us in the way that you need to love us. I don't care what happens around me. Let God mess you up in the best way possible. So let's take this, apply it to our search for joy. We've been talking about finding joy. Turn over to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. We've been tracking through Paul's letter, and I want you to see Paul's response to the love of God, to what God coming close to Paul meant in his own life. In chapter 3, we're just over halfway through the letter, and Paul's told the Philippians to rejoice in spite of the trials, in spite of division with each other. He says, I know you have arrogance among you, people who are stirring up trouble. You should read the beginning of chapter 3. And then he says, if anyone should boast, you've got these people in your church, they're boasting about how holy they are. He says, if anyone should boast, I should boast. That's what Paul says. And he goes through this list right before the passage we're going to read. He says, I'm a Jew of all Jews. I had all the right credentials. If you looked at my resume, I was the holy man. But then he makes this incredible statement. Look at verse 7. Here's what he says about his credentials. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. My resume is junk. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I keep talking to people this year, and I feel it myself, and we talk about all that we've lost in 2020, right? We have. We've lost. We've lost a normal school year. We've lost sports seasons. We've lost our trips that we planned. We've lost contact with friends, loved ones. We've lost the ability to be together. We've lost people from our church because of the comfort levels. As I said earlier, we've lost touch and affection. And Paul knows about lost. Loss. His credentials were perfect. And had he led out of those credentials, he would have climbed the Jewish religious ladder. He would have held power and privilege. But he says, I gave it all up for the sake of Christ. Now remember, Paul's writing this from a jail cell knowing that he could have been in a position of power, but he's found contentment in his loss because he knows Christ. He's more content chained to a wall not knowing if he's going to die because he knows Jesus. I wonder if we could say the same this year. I wonder if the things we've lost, and you've got to do some self-examination here, but I wonder if the things you've lost and that I've lost have left, left us closer to Christ or closer to complacency? I, I wonder if the things that we feel like have been stripped away from us have left us closer to Christ or closer to complaint. I wonder if we've been brought closer to, to Christ or closer to some version of religion that functions as a pacifier simply when we're stressed out. See, Paul goes on, and, and here's what he says about the things he's lost. Look at the second part of verse 8. He says, I consider them garbage. Now, everybody say garbage, because we're going to come back to that word. Okay, way, way to wake up. Good job. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Now, this is one of my favorite parts of the Bible, and it's because of this word garbage. Can I tell you the Greek word for garbage? Anybody know it? Just shout it out. It's such a great word. The word is scubalo. Isn't that a fun word? Everybody say scubalo. 
Yeah, you're way more excited than that. You're garbage. Here's what that word means in the Greek. It means trash. Yes, it's trash. It's garbage. But it's also, this is going to get so fun, dung. Yes, excrement. Insert your favorite curse word for dung here. That's what Paul says. I consider it crap. It's scubalo, right? So the next time something bad happens, oh, scubalo, right? That's, that's what he's saying. Paul is amped up here. He says, I could be arrogant, but all that stuff is scubalo. It doesn't matter. He says, I want to know Jesus. I want to be found in Jesus. Paul wants to encounter Jesus with the same intimacy. Don't miss this. With the same intimacy that Mary encountered Gabriel. He wants to know the favor of God. He wants Jesus to come close because that's the only way to push back the darkness is with Jesus. In the middle of a prison cell, the answer isn't freedom or escape. It's Jesus. In the middle of a pandemic, the answer is not let's get back to normal. It's Jesus. That's the answer. Friends, in the middle of this year, we don't need solutions. We need Jesus Christ. We need his touch. We need his compassion. We need it to disturb and trouble us in the best way possible. Look at verse 10. Paul keeps rolling. He says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection, the participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Now, this is so unbelievable to me. The the, the power of these words, we miss them. Paul, in prison, says, all I want to do is know Christ. I want to know all of him. I don't want to know about him. I don't want to just know the books of the Bible. I don't want to know who his disciples were. I want to know Jesus. I don't want to know just the parts of him that bless me. I want to know him in resurrection. I want to participate in his sufferings and know what that's like. I want to even know his death because he's the light. And even in the face of death, death, if I'm with him, then death isn't going to win. Verse 10, I want to know Christ, to know the power of the resurrection, participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Verse 11, and so somehow, Paul says, somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. If I know him, Paul says, I'll have the hope of resurrection, staring right in the eyes of death. That's where the hope of resurrection and the love of Jesus are the most real. Friends, as hard as this week was, and for me it was hard watching my girls suffer and grieve, but as hard as it was, it brought me closer to Jesus. And I found myself in this part of Paul's letter, and I just found myself going, I want to be like Paul, right? Like, I want to desire the things that Paul desired. I want to want to know Jesus like that. No matter what, no matter the cost, in the face of death, in the threat of a pandemic, in the middle of all the chaos, I want to know Jesus. What about you? I told you several weeks ago that our perspective shapes our desires. Our desires actually shift and change when our perspective changes. If we have an earthly perspective, this year is terrible, right? If you've got an earthly perspective, this is an awful year. And our desires are just, let's get past it. And so somewhere, I think in our minds, we have this collective thought that, well, it's almost December 31st. Everything will get better on January 1st. Let me tell you, the pandemic knows no calendar, right? Politicians know no calendar, We have got to shift our perspective. But if we have a kingdom perspective, our desires change. They become kingdom focused and it reshapes everything. So what are your desires? What are you longing for? What perspective do you have? Look at how Paul ends this passage in Philippians. Here's what he says. Not that I have already obtained all this. I love his humility. He says, I am nowhere close to there. Not that I've already obtained all this or I've already arrived at my goal, but I press on. 
to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I don't consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forget what is behind and strain toward what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. I have so many running illustrations that I could share with you there, and I'm not going to share any of them. Paul says, I press on, forget what's behind, and I just go after my goal of knowing Christ. Mary's encounter with the angel ends with a simple surrender in Luke 138. Here's what she says. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Or as the great prophet Paul McCartney said, let it be. Let it be. This Advent, could we find the courage to say, let it be. Whatever it is, I'm the Lord's servant. And if he favors me and if he's close to me, then may his word to me be fulfilled. When I was processing the hug this week, I read about this condition because that's what I do. I have to understand it in my brain. Are you with me? This condition that medical professionals and psychiatrists identify as touch starvation. And the way they define it is simple. When physical contact becomes limited or in some cases eliminated, people can develop a condition called touch starvation or touch deprivation. It's like someone starved for food, they say. They want to eat but they can't. Their psyche and their body want to touch someone, but they can't do it because of the fear associated with, in this case, the pandemic. It includes stress, depression, anxiety, several negative physiological effects, heart rate increases, blood pressure, respiration, muscle tension, all can suffer. And all of those things increase the risks of affection. So, so listen, okay, listen. I think we need the wisdom of science. I'm annoyed to death by so many people who are refusing to wear masks and do the best. I just think that needs to happen. I think we should be past that conversation. However, I also want to say this. I am just as, if not more, concerned for the emotional health and well-being of so many of us that I know are starved for touch, starved for connection, starved for community right now. I believe we are staring down a barrel of mental health tragedies if we don't find ways to be the community of people who love and care for and touch each other. We need each other. You need the community of Christ. You need the people of Jesus around you. If you're watching online, and I know I haven't done this much, but I want to speak to you, you need to find a way to connect with folks. You've got to find a way to plug into the body of Christ. And more importantly, than all of that, than even just each other, I believe in 2020, a few days now from Christmas, many of us are touch-deprived when it comes to our relationship with Jesus. I believe that this intellectual worship, this social distancing of, of putting ourselves and God at a safe distance must be torn down. Whatever it takes, Paul says, I'm not there yet, nowhere near what I want to be, but I'm pressing on. I want to know Jesus. I want to chase after him. And to do that, I have to forget what's behind me and strain towards what is ahead. And friends, what is ahead this week is Christ coming near us. It's Emmanuel. It's the final candle that says he's here. The darkness doesn't get to win. It's not going to be victorious. It doesn't matter how long the pandemic lasts. It doesn't matter how long we have to wear masks. Jesus is still victorious. That's the hope we have, softening what we've hardened healing what's been broken, and it will cost us, but it will be so worth it. I'm going to have the band come, and as they do, I wanted to, I just, this was so fascinating to me. There's one statement in the Old Testament made 38 times. It's a law of God applied to several 
several areas. In the statement, 38 times, the, the Israelites are told, do not touch. Students, remember being told, don't touch that. Husbands, remember being told, don't touch that. That's candy for, those are cookies for Christmas. Don't touch them. 38 times in the Old Testament, the Israelites were told, don't touch. Rules about razors that should never touch heads and hands that shouldn't touch the tabernacle. Laws about not touching the sick, the bleeding, the feeble, the diseased. Don't touch work on the Sabbath. Don't touch the belongings of wicked people. Don't touch particular animals. Don't touch holy or unholy things. But in the New Testament, something changes because Jesus begins his ministry with touch. He's criticized for touching the unclean. He heals those who need healing with touch. He touches the heads of the bleeding, the unclean, the heads of adulterous women. He heals on the Sabbath using his hands. He spits in the mud, in the dirt, and makes mud and rubs it on eyes that needs healing. He touches the diseased, the children, and he allows himself to be touched by unclean people, women, tax collectors, sinners, and snotty kids. One of the first acts after resurrection, he says, Thomas, put your hand right here and see if it gets more real than the hole in my side. Friends, we have a Savior who longs to come close. And as we move towards Christmas, I pray in the midst of this crazy, dark year that the light of that Savior invades and overcomes your darkness. And so as we close, and we're going to close with a song, and I want to invite you to respond in the way that you need to respond. Maybe you need to respond by going, God, I'm tired of keeping you at a social distance. I'm going to prostrate myself before you. I'm going to lift my hands before you. I'm going to worship before you in a way that I haven't. I may need to come to the altar. I may need to grab someone and say, I need you to pray with me right now. Whatever it is, I would invite you to come close to Jesus, to draw near, to press towards him so that he can come close to you. Because friends, you are still, everybody say still, you are still highly favored. God is still with you. Let me pray for us. Jesus, would you come close in only the way that you can? Would you invite us to touch you as you touch us? Father, many of us are lonely. Many of us are hurting. Many of us have had an incredibly difficult season, difficult year. Many friends watching online are, are just not even sure what to do with their anxiety, their anger. Father, I pray that freedom would invade lives right now. Freedom and courage and joy and hope and all the things that the light of your son, Jesus Christ, you bring into this world. We thank you that you come cl came close to Mary. We thank you that you still come close to us. May we consider everything a loss. May it be garbage, scubalo, for the sake of knowing you. And may we forget what's behind, forget where we've messed up, forget where we've been broken, forget what, what has held us captive, and press on to know you deeply in this place. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. As we sing this song. I would invite you to be the church. Be the church for each other. Be the church for yourself. Come to Christ. Behold who he is. And worship in whatever way as we sing this song over you.